In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mary, Queen of all hearts and Queen of all saints. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The feast that we celebrate today, the Feast of All Saints, is not a new thing in the life of the Church, but a very, very ancient thing. And Perhaps it is best to begin there. Very quickly in Christian history, as the gospel was being spread, the importance of those who testified to the faith, especially with the spilling of their blood, was held to be in great importance. And so it was often in, for example, the city of Rome, that the church being persecuted and being uncertain about the survival of any individual of its members gathered, as we know, below ground in the catacombs. And as the faithful were killed in giving witness to their faith, their bodies were likewise taken below ground and preserved and kept. And the community often would bring the remains of those who gave their lives for the faith into the area where they gathered for the celebration of Mass. And note, it is not that the martyrs honor the Mass. It is the Mass honors the martyrs. And sometimes there's misunderstandings of this, um, where in order to have mass, you need to have an altar in the relic. No, you, uh, relic in the altar. No, you don't. It is not the relic that validates the altar. It is placement on the altar is a great honor for the martyr or for the saint. And however, the custom was that that strong sense of belief in the resurrection and the triumph of Jesus over the dead, that death does not cut us off from those who have gone before us, especially those whose lives are marked by a very real objective degree of faithfulness and holiness. And so the experience was not simply we are gathering in the presence of the remains of our friends as if we're reminiscing. It is we are at prayer with them. They singing in glory before the throne of God in heaven while we gather and sing our own hymns of praise here on this earth. And note that marvelous sense of the full communion of the members of the body of Christ. Death is not sufficient to separate us. And that what we do here in our worship of the living God is not simply related to, but is in fact an act of communion with that worship which is presently going on in heaven. And so there is very, a very concrete experience there around the remains of those whom they knew that what we are doing 
we are doing with one foot on earth and one foot already in heaven, in them. And what a remarkable understanding that really is, that every time we gather for the celebration of the sacrament, whether in the presence of relics of the saints or not, that is exactly what is happening. What is, the prayer that was taking place on earth is in communion with and in its own way a very real participation in the worship of heaven itself. And the worship that takes place in heaven is not separable from what we do here because of that one Jesus Christ in whom we all have salvation and life. And so it was when the church was legalized and the Christians could come up from their places in the catacombs below the streets. As the Christians came up, they brought their saints with them and gave them the honor of interring them in their great churches. And note again, it is not the bones of the martyrs that honor the church. It is the recognition of their importance, placing them in the church that honors them. And very quickly, very quickly came the practice then of remembering the dates on which men and women gave their lives for the faith. Even if they didn't know all the names, they knew that on this date, some 40 of us were killed. On this date, some 25, including this one or these two, gave their lives for the faith. And those became points on the calendar that the community would gather for celebration with a particular joy and a particular intensity. And this was done to thank God for what he had done for the martyr and what he had done through the martyr for the church. And so note that it's never merely the celebration of the person. It is the celebration of the movement of grace in and through that person's life. And in time, very quickly, the custom came into the church of celebrating a day because there were so very many. For example, not just in Rome, but in North Africa, and in Spain, and in Gaul, and in the Near East. So very many who had given their lives in witness of the gospel that the custom came in very early on to celebrate a day dedicated to all the martyrs. And the church wasn't even above ground 100 years before that had happened. Note how quickly. Note how quickly. And this idea then of recognizing that what we've seen in the lives of the individual martyrs is something that has reproduced itself in the lives of so very many. It is not a unique thing, but rather it is a way that the grace of God works when it claims the human life, and that life surrenders to it and submits to it and cooperates with it. The celebration of the Feast of All the Martyrs would then be a cause of great joy. Over time, the holiness of those who didn't spill their blood was also recognized. And that number began to increase. And so over time, a few hundred years later, it was recognized that it is right 
and just and good to celebrate not simply all the martyrs, but all of the holy ones, all of the saints. And so that is the origin of All Saints Day. It begins with the commemoration of the martyrs because that was the first moment the church could unambiguously attest to someone's glorious state, that faithfulness in the face of so much. Note what we heard in our gospel reading. When you are persecuted and your life is at risk for the gospel, rejoice and be glad, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That was the first, in a sense, that was the first form of canonization. That statement of the Lord, when this happens, rejoice and be glad, for yours is the kingdom. And so the martyrs are celebrated as victors, not as victims. The martyrs are celebrated as witnesses, not as those who are accused. And in doing so, this then gives motivation, especially when persecution is taken away, for ordinary men and women to recognize that goodness requires a certain degree of heroism, a certain degree of faithfulness. And it is not persecution that makes a martyr, it is that makes a saint, it is faithfulness to the gospel. And so inspired by and strengthened by the example of the martyrs, because it was recognized, they could not spill their blood for Christ if they weren't already living for him. The important thing was not the spilling of their blood, but the living of a life that made that possible. And so in a situation where no one is threatening to take my life, ordinary faithful began to recognize, I can't share in being a martyr in that way, but I can share in living the kind of life that makes that kind of great witness possible. That became the spur of so many then to get to dedicate themselves to prayer, to good works, to the heroism of living among the wounded and the ill and the infirm. That great thing, recognizing that if I just look at the end of the martyr's life, I miss the most important part of the story on some levels, which is the faithfulness that made that moment possible, because it doesn't come out of nowhere. For every martyr that we have in our tradition, we also have, we also have a great number of others who weren't equal to the moment who renounced their faith, who ran away, who fled. And this is not to criticize them. It is to say that the moment must be met by a life and a heart that is ready. And so in celebrating the example of the martyrs, it was the heroism not just of their final moment, but the heroism of their generosity, their boldness, and their goodness that made that moment possible in the first place. And if one can't share the martyrdom, one can share the other things. And so then note the example, because this now points out the basic reasons why we have today's feast, the celebration of all the saints. And we have it for three reasons. One, to thank and celebrate Almighty God for what he has done in and through the lives of the saints. Two, 
to inspire us to look at the saints, to consider them, and to seek to conform to their example. And three, because they are still very much alive to us, to call upon them for their help. They who have gone before us and walked the way of faithfulness before us, as we struggle to become faithful, to ask for their help and their intercession. These are the three basic reasons why there is devotion to the saints, any particular saint, and to the saints in general in their great number. One, to thank and glorify God for what he has done in and through them. Two, to consider their example to be edified and inspired by it so that we might find in them a pattern for our own movement toward greater holiness. And three, to call upon their help because they are very much still connected to and still interested in us. So that having been said, let's take a look at what these three things mean. Because it's one thing to list them, but it's another to consider what is actually going on with these three points. Number one, to celebrate and to thank God for what he has done in and through the life of the saint. And when we put it that way, we recognize first that personal and individual holiness is not so much an individual accomplishment of any one of us, however greatly celebrated for holiness. It is rather a working of God that produces a tremendous and great fruit within us. And so when we look at those whose holiness is unambiguous, when we consider those lives, the first thing the church wants to do is to thank God for what his grace has done in that life. And we recognize that this transformation is a work of God, a work of the Lord molding and forming that life into greater perfection, into true perfection. But we also recognize this, and this is very important, that the holiness of the saints that we celebrate is not their private possession. This working of grace in their life is not for their benefit alone. It is for the benefit of the people of God. In fact, the benefit of the entire world. And so note, God doesn't simply work in the saints so that they are holy as if that holiness is somehow disconnected from everyone else. That is a dangerous way of thinking that all too many Christians across the centuries have fallen into. My relationship with God is private. It's personal. It's between me and God. Let me be blunt. No, it's not. It's never just between you and God. Rather, we recognize that if any of us is saved, it is because we are saved. The Lord doesn't save us individually and personally and then gather us together, 
giving us the option to consider how we'll belong to the body. The Lord saves a people, and he saves you and me by uniting us to his people. Note the difference. To be saved is to belong to the body of Christ. To be saved is to be a member of his people. And if one is a member of the body, he or she cannot consider himself separable from the other members. It means what he does impacts the body, for good or for ill. So when we celebrate the saints, we recognize that the holiness of these men and women has an impact on the world, and it has an impact on us. Consider for a moment the saints you admire. They're famous for the effect their lives have had on others, whether it was through great works of charity, whether it was through their scholarship, whether it was through the way their prayers for others were answered, whether it was by their preaching, whether it was by the example that they gave others which transformed many lives. Note how we can't speak of their holiness without speaking of its impact on others. And because that impact was so good, because that impact was so positive, because that impact was so powerful, it was clear that their holiness is genuine and not just wishful thinking on our parts. And so what do we do? In celebrating these lives, whether it is St. Therese the Little Flower, whether it is St. Louis Marie de Montfort, whether it is Francis, Benedict, or Dominic, whether it is any of the martyrs whose names are listed in the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, which is the listing of the martyrs of the Church of Rome by name. Note how wonderful that is. But it is recognizing that God has given something to his people through the holiness of this man or this woman. And we are grateful for what we have received from God through them. And so note how we thank God for the way he has transformed that person and we celebrate it because there is a true personal victory there. But we also recognize that precisely because of that, it's a victory that has had an effect on us too. And that God is pleased to give us his grace and his goodness through all of these others. In other words, the church takes very seriously what St. Paul says, what he writes to the churches, to each one of you, he says, there has been given a gift of the Holy Spirit for the upbuilding of the body. It's a remarkably important statement. And note, Paul allows no exceptions. He doesn't say to a lucky few of you, a gift has been given. He doesn't say to some of you, but not you guys who haven't measured up. He says to each and every single one of you, a gift has been given. And in speaking that way, Paul is calling all of the Christians to whom he is speaking to a moment of accountability and a moment of recognition. I have been 
given something. But note what he says. What you've been given in this particular case is not for you. It's for the upbuilding of the body. God has other gifts he gives you for you. But he also gives each and every one of you a gift which is for the upbuilding of the body. And the only way the body can receive that gift is if we give it, if we use it, if we recognize it and put it into circulation. And the appropriate response when we receive a gift is to say thank you, right? No, we thank God for what he does in the saints and for us through the saints. Because we also recognize that in these lives, that gift that the Holy Spirit has given for the upbuilding of the body has in fact been received by the body, has in fact been received by the church. It was given generously, and so the church received abundantly from these witnesses, from these men and these women. You know, and St. Paul doesn't talk about majestic realities when he does that. He doesn't speak of miracles. He just says everybody's got something. Everybody has a way of building up the body, however small it may seem. It doesn't matter because it is the Spirit of God that is in work in that. And when we allow that to happen, there is a positive effect on the body. And we recognize that in these saints, God has given something to his church through them. Note how that has to be the first step. With regard to devotion to the saints, that has to be the starting point. We have to recognize that this is the working of God in a life that submits to it, that surrenders to it, that cooperates with it. And precisely because of that allows God to give something to the world through itself. <coughs> because then, reason number two, we celebrate the saints and out of our thanksgiving, we look at them as examples for us. If St. Paul says, to each has been given a gift for the upbuilding of the body, well, you know, the next question is, how do I figure that out and where do I start? And so we have the saints. And we have their diversity of examples. Because we have married men and women. We have children. We have scholars. We have medical professionals. We have soldiers. We have those who've given their lives. We have those who simply were sick and suffered. We have men and women of tremendous prayer and contemplation. We have men and women of truly heroic charity and generosity. Note how broad and how diverse that is. And so when we recognize that, notice what else we are doing. We are celebrating the creativity and the abundance of the grace of God and the many kinds of fruit it can produce in the world. And it doesn't allow any one of us 
to absolve himself or herself and say, I can't see myself in any one of them. There are great sinners whose lives were changed. The objectively wicked who became tremendously holy. There are the mediocre whose hearts are stirred to new fire and new vigor. There are those who've always been on the right track and fortunately never left it. But there is an example for every single one of us, generally many, generally several. There is no profession that in its own way is not represented. Both genders are represented. Every age of man is represented from childhood to very old age. And so note, the healthy as well as the sick, the rich as well as the poor, the illiterate as well as the educated. Holiness finds a home and expresses itself in all of them. And it is here then that we pause and we recognize what the church in the Second Vatican Council articulated as the universal call to holiness. And it echoes St. Paul when it speaks that way. Holiness is not the private preserve of the clergy, nor the religious. Holiness and growth in holiness is not the private preserve of those whose statues we have in church and faces on our stained glass windows, whom we call the canonized saints. Because the temptation can always be they were called to holiness. Me, not so much. The temptation can be those whose job it is to be religious, they are called to holiness. But I don't have that job. This is not a new idea that came into being at the Second Vatican Council. It's an old idea that the council forcefully re-articulated because much of the church had fallen asleep with regard to that. Holiness was a matter for everybody else, but not me. Holiness is the province of a few, but not all. St. Louis de Montfort, a couple hundred years before the Second Vatican Council, writes in one of his books, it is certain that growth in holiness is your vocation. So it's not a new idea. It has been with us from the very beginning. In fact, St. Paul in his letters addresses himself regularly to the hagioi of a certain church, the saints. And he wasn't speaking, there was, no, there was no formal canonization process at that point. He wasn't writing to people who died and are reigning gloriously in heaven. He is writing to those who are alive and calling them saints. To the saints in the city of Corinth. To the saints who dwell in Ephesus. We're not used to thinking that way, are we? We are used to thinking of ourselves as those who really have no realistic shot at ever being saints. We're used to thinking of ourselves as the ordinary, the normal, and yet Paul is recognizing 
because he's writing to people who aren't necessarily any holier than we are at that moment. But there's something in them, something about them that is touched by and claimed by holiness. They are holy not because they are such great people. Because before they even become that, they are holy because of the life of Jesus Christ that they already have inside of them. They are holy because of what happened to them on the day of their baptism. They are holy because they belong to God. And so the call to holiness is to grow into that. And every one of us has that gift. Every one of us has that reality about us. Every one of us then is called to let the fact that I belong to God. I am in fact consecrated to him, set aside for him. The more I correspond to that, the more I can cooperate with that, the more his grace can change me. If I live in indifference to it, I don't belong to him any less. I just cooperate a lot less. Um, and so in speaking then of the saints as an example for all of us, the church is saying they have already blazed the trail that we're called to walk. We don't have to worry saying, how do I get there? Because we've got folks who can show us. <coughs> the great spiritual writer, Jean Gerson, who lived a couple hundred years before St. Louis de Montfort, in one of his letters of spiritual direction, you know, made a really telling statement. And he said, you know, for all the advice I've given, and for all the people I've helped grow spiritually, what I'm really afraid of is that when it's all over, I'm going to be nothing more than the guy who stood at the foot of the mountain where the trail is and handed out the maps to everybody and said, this is how you get up there without climbing it myself. <coughs> um, and, um, you know, and I, I use that example because when we celebrate the saints, that's exactly what we're not celebrating. We're celebrating the ones who don't just hand us the map, but who are living maps because they've walked that trail. They are those who've climbed the mountain of the Lord with the clean hands and the blameless hearts, desiring not worthless things. They've done that. And so the beautiful thing then is we can look at the saints and we can see the varieties of ways in which the climb is possible. And yet we can also see, in looking at them all together, the common elements involved in anyone making that climb. Um, and so it is absolutely marvelous then that we have these examples. Raising my family, where does holiness fit? And how does it express itself? In my career, where does holiness fit? And how does it express itself? In my spare time, where does holiness fit? And how does it express itself? <coughs> and, and so here we have, in a very real way, what the scriptures speak of as that great cloud of witnesses. That great cloud, that number beyond counting, that all together witness to the truth 
that growth and holiness is possible, should not be uncommon, and is something to which all of us are called to share, and yet in their particularity also show us the variety of ways that it can be done. This is why it's so important and for, you know, to have a patron saint. Not just because that saint prays for me, but because of the way that saint can be a model and an example for me. And why? Because in gazing at the saints in their holiness, I see a particular aspect of the face of Jesus Christ. The way Christ expresses himself in and through that life. I see an example of the particular ways in which God gives his grace to the world in and through those individuals. <clears throat> and that reminds me that there's a particularity here too, that God has a particular way of giving something to the world in me and through me, that God has a particular way of changing the world precisely by changing me but it's not so absolutely unique to me that it has nothing to do with anybody else. Rather, I can see that somebody else has gone through it first. And that reminds me that in fact it is possible. Because when we celebrate the saints, we celebrate people who begin just like us. Just like us. And that's why it's so important to remember, as we mentioned in the homily, that we often make the mistake of looking at our fallenness as what is natural about us. But God didn't create us as fallen men and women. God created man robed in glory with a heart capable of goodness. That's what's natural. And so when we look at the saints, we also see what human nature really is and we recognize how easily we settle for something less. Then third, and then third, but you know, again, note the sequence. We thank God in recognizing what God has done. Now we turn to those as examples. Having done that and having seen that, what do we do then? We know they have gone before us. We know that they are still alive to us. We know that they are still interested in us. They are members of the body, already glorious. We're the members of the body, hoping to get to that glory. Note the relationship. They want the glory they have to be shared with us. We long to participate in the life that they already have, in the joy that they already know. We long to walk along the way they have marked out for us. And they who know the way can help us. And so we pray to them, calling upon their help. This is why from very early on, the church has called out to its saints for their prayers. One, because they're alive. Two, because they care. Three, because they stand before the throne of God. Why would we not call out to somebody in that position? And note how, again, how each and every one of us has a cluster of saints, if we pause, 
with whom we identify for whatever reason. It becomes natural then out of the great many to call out to some few, I need your help. But recognizing that there is no one among the members of the body here on earth who has none that he can call to for help. And as we consider this, we pause for a moment <coughs> because now we talk about the relationship between today and tomorrow and here. Today, tomorrow, and here. Because we speak, when we speak of the body of Christ, when we speak of the church, the reality and the mystery of the church, we speak of the one people of God as existing not in many different countries and not in many different parts of the world and not being gathered from many nations, languages, and cultures. That's all true, but that can easily obscure the real truth if we don't go beyond that. The people of God exists across all time. Not just all around the world now. The people of God exists across all ages. Those who have gone before us and have passed away are still members of the body of Christ, still members of the people of God. They don't stop being that. At the moment of death, they continue to be that. Note how different everything sounds when you put it that way. So when we recognize that, we recognize that the people of God exist likewise then on three different levels. Traditionally, the names are the church triumphant, the church suffering, and the church militant or pilgrim. The church triumphant is those who have gone before us and have passed on to glory in heaven. That is where the saints are. Note, they are still members of the church, still members of the body. And so the body has members that are, in fact, glorious, already in heaven. Now note, if the body is in part already in heaven, where does the rest of the body want to go? Heaven. And what does the part in heaven do? It wants to pull the rest of the body up to be with it. That is the intercession of the saints. Those who are there want us to be with them because the body is not complete if it can't all be up there. And so they want us with them. Their intercession, their example is at the service of helping us get there, to pull us up so that we can be with them. <coughs> there is the church suffering. These are the members of the body who likewise have gone before us, whose earthly lives have come to an end. But for whatever reason, there is something about them, while not completely wicked, is still tainted by, colored by sin in some way. And so they need to undergo a certain purification in purgatory. They can no longer help themselves, but they must be helped by the other members of the body. Note again, 
the insistence in the church, we remain connected. We are not separated, even if the physical separation that comes with death has intervened in our relationships. Rather, we remain connected. And those who likewise see heaven but can't get there on their own until they are purified need the help of the other members of the body to speed them along that way. And then there's us. And so note that we here have a relationship with both of those other elements of the body. We are the living presence of the church here on this earth who are engaged in the battle to become good and who are on the pilgrim journey from this world to the next, moving toward our true home, which is not this earth. In that movement and in that struggle, we are helped by the church triumphant, the saints whose prayers and whose example are available to us to help us move forward. And yet, even as we are helped by them, we have the ability to help those others, the church suffering in purgatory, those members of the body being purified, who can no longer do good works on their own. That moment has passed, but can receive the benefit of the good that we do and the prayers that we say. Note how wonderful that is, how we on this earth have both a giving and a receiving relationship with the other parts of the body of Christ. Because the goal of all of this is that in the end, there only be one level of the church, triumphant in heaven. We're not nearly there yet, but that is the desired outcome. And so the celebration that we have today, this celebration of the saints, involves all of these things. And Note how then how wonderful it is when we speak about devotion to the saints. It's, sometimes we take it for granted. It's just such a common part of Catholic life that we give it very little thought. And yet, when we look under the hood, there's an awful lot there, an awful lot there. But again, note the three elements. We thank and celebrate the goodness of God for what he has done in them and through them. Then we turn to the saints, marveling at their goodness so that we can learn from and profit by their example. And then three, these men and women who are such a mighty example to us, we also recognize are those who can very powerfully help us along the way. And so we call out to them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.